everyone. Welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the NX Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. I'm your host, Crypto Texan, and we have with us here today Kane Warwick from Synthetics. Kane, thanks for being here with us today. Hey, thanks very much for having me. Uh, so, typically we like to start off with Pretty simple. Kane, how did you get into crypto and DeFi? What's your story? Uh, how did I get into crypto? So I think uh, the first um, first interaction that I ever had uh, with Bitcoin, um, like a lot of people, uh, I used to be uh, deep into Slashdot, like from like the late 90s, um, all the way through into like, you know, I guess the the late uh, 2000s into like 2010. Um, and in 2011, uh, there was like an upgrade to the network and it got posted about and, and a bunch of people jumped on to talk about how dumb of an idea it was and how it wasn't going to work. Um, thankfully, I never responded to that thread. I used to I used to be pretty active on uh, on there, but I probably would have made a fool of myself if I had responded and, and jumped in and talked about how it wasn't going to work. Um, so that was my first interaction with Bitcoin. Um, and then uh, a little while later, in like 2012, um, I was running a computer store and uh, I had been kind of tinkering with CG Miner. Uh, and I was like, you know what, like I'm running this thing on my home computer PC and, you know, my hash rate is, is not very high. I've got like 50 gaming machines uh, in this store. Like I should go and mine uh, Bitcoin on those, like, you know, be able to. Uh, you know, probably be a hundred times more powerful or, or two hundred times more powerful. They were, you know, crazy Nvidia graphics cards and stuff. Um, and the guy who was uh, who was working for me at the time was like, "No, sorry, I'm running this like distributed web cracking software on all the gaming machines. You can't use them." And ignore it and just forgot about it. Um, so that was that was kind of the second time. So that was two near misses, I guess, with uh, with Bitcoin in the early days. Um, and then in 2013, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Asher um, from CoinJar, uh, put out some note on like LinkedIn or something like that about he was launching a, a Bitcoin wallet. Um, and I was running a, an online retail business at the time. And uh, so we were the first customer um, of them uh, trying to set up um, set up payments in Bitcoin, which no one ever did. I don't think we ever took a single transaction in Bitcoin uh, back then. Um, it was a bit too early. And then uh, I launched a payment company um, uh, a few years later, and we worked with a lot of the Bitcoin exchanges in Australia, uh, Bitcoin brokers in Australia, uh, basically to act as like an alternative uh, payment network um, because the banks were pretty unfavorable to uh, crypto companies back then. It's still not super favorable. It's a little bit better now. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my early, my early crypto history. Okay, and then you eventually found your way to synthetics. How how did you do that? What prompted uh, your your founding of synthetics? Yeah, so I I was uh, I was running that payment company. It was it was doing really well. Um, I we started supporting Ethereum uh, in like 2016, um, and I started getting more into the the Ethereum uh, community. I you know participated in the DAO and. Um, some early ICOs and stuff like that. Um, and 
I just kind of went down the rabbit hole and I was like, this is, this is kind of the thing that, uh, I was looking for back in, in that like online retail days, like the, you know, a payment mechanism, you know, in stable coins that, that could be, uh, could be really powerful and permissionless. Um, but maker hadn't launched, obviously, you know, this is like late 2016, early 2017 maker hadn't launched yet. Um, you know, there was BitShares and Tether, uh, both of which I think, uh, you know, had their own uh, issues. And so I, I, you know, was thinking more about like how to kind of build a very specific kind of use case of like online payments, right? Like how to, how to solve that online payments use case. Um, so I came up with this idea of like a closed loop payment network, like a, a PayPal style thing, but, you know, uh, decentralized. Um, and so that was Haven. That was the original uh, kind of precursor, I guess, to, uh, to synthetics. Um, and then in 2018, when uh, a lot of the uh, regulated stablecoins started popping up, uh, we realized that, you know, this decentralized stablecoin is not going to be able to compete, um, you know, on, uh, on fees and, you know, on, on a whole bunch of other aspects. And so we decided to pivot uh, and go a bit more degen and support assets like gold and silver, Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, synthetic ether, uh, and that's when we started to get a little bit of traction. Okay, yeah, and I think it might be helpful. Can you explain to the listeners just a what is a synthetic asset, and you know, synthetic with a C at the end, and then what are synthetics with an X? Uh, are there really differences between the two? Uh, how do they compare and contrast? Also. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of different synthetic assets out there, um, you know, and, and they can be structured in, in different ways. Um, but I think from from our perspective, we have had this kind of very narrow use case of uh, an, an asset in the form of a token, which gives you price exposure uh, to some other asset that is not a crypto native asset, right, or, or is not on the chain that uh, that you're on, um, so you know, example of that is like Bitcoin, right? Um, so there's no uh, native Bitcoin on Ethereum. Um, you've got some wrapped versions like wrapped BTC. Um, you've got some bridged versions like REN BTC, TBTC, um, and then uh, you've got you know kind of pure synthetic versions like SBTC, which is our, our synthetic version, uh, which basically tracks the price of this external asset in Bitcoin, which is running on another network by looking at an oracle that takes a bunch of prices from a bunch of different places and then publish it, publishes that onto the Ethereum network so that we can build this token that tracks that price. Uh, and so it's a way of uh, essentially uh, having like a representation of this other asset. Um, and the same goes for things like gold and silver, oil, um, you know, synthetic equities, basically any uh, asset you can imagine that's fairly liquid. Um, that exists out, outside of the Ethereum ecosystem can be replicated uh, within Ethereum via the synthetics platform. Okay, and can you explain why why would somebody want to own or mint a synthetic asset as opposed to uh, holding the actual asset? In the case of, uh, well, yeah, gold and silver, but then also in the case of like a cryptocurrency like synthetic ETH or synthetic BTC. Yeah, so I think, you know, there's obviously nuances in, in each asset class. Um, why would someone want synthetic gold uh, versus, you know, holding physical gold? Um, I think 
probably it's a similar uh, reason for why you know most people most of the activity in the world on gold is paper gold, right? Um, you know, so gold futures and other uh, gold instruments. Um, you know, people aren't really wheeling uh, you know trucks full of gold back and forth uh, between between offices, right, and, and things like that. Um, you know, people just want price exposure. Um, so I think you know when you look at something like gold. Uh, it really comes down to, you know, essentially people don't, most people who are trading gold, like most of the volume of gold trading um, is purely speculative. It, you know, it's not, uh, it's not really um, someone who wants, you know, to lock a bar of gold in their vault at home and, and you know, with all of their canned goods and their ammunition. Um, although, you know, that is definitely a use case. Um, and so for those people having a synthetic version that's uh, running on a, a kind of trustless network, um, is pretty equivalent to trading paper gold, right? If you just want price exposure, the added benefit, I guess, for crypto native people is that you have all of these other places uh, and, and venues where there's liquidity. So you've got, you know, Uniswap, and you've got aggregators like One Inch, and um, you know, uh, other AMMs like Curve, and, and you know, all these different places where you can trade these assets, and there's a ton of on-chain liquidity. And so having a way to go from uh, you know, one crypto native asset, which might be an ERC20 token, into a token that's ERC20 but tracks the price of gold, but is compatible with all these other platforms and composable with all these other platforms is really valuable for crypto native people. Um, and not too dissimilar to, you know, paper gold, right, which is just uh, this kind of synthetic version of, of gold price exposure. Yeah, that makes sense, especially with gold, uh, the cost of carry, like you said, locking it in a vault uh, can be pretty high overhead uh when you could just you got to sit there with a shotgun all day right so right. you know that's expensive absolutely <laughs> time <yeah>. value <laughs> your value of your time right right so let, let's get into the weeds a little bit um how how could someone go just through the process start to finish of minting um let's just say synthetic btc on the platform how, how does that process work so it, it's a pretty straightforward process if all you want to do is get uh, synthetic Bitcoin price exposure. Um, what you do is you take um, any asset that you've got, like it might be USDC, it might be ETH, um, and you can go to a place like OneInch uh, and you can exchange that uh, ETH or, or USDC. Um, there's these cross-asset swap functionality um, that's supported on OneInch and Curve. Uh, which allows you to go from you know ETH or USDC or whatever into synthetic Bitcoin, um, and it's it's a couple of transactions. You know, it's not it's not perfect. There's a little bit of friction there, um, but it's a fairly fairly straightforward process. So you don't need to be involved in minting or staking SNX or anything like that. You can literally just turn up and exchange you know the asset you have USDC or, or whatever uh, and get uh, you know synthetic Bitcoin or any other synth. Right. So. Why, why would somebody, I guess, mint a synthetic asset as opposed to just purchasing it on uh, a DEX aggregator, like you said? So if, if all you want is the price exposure um, and you're just a, a speculator or a trader, uh, then your best bet is just, you know, again, take the asset you have, convert that asset into, into the synthetic version to get that price exposure. Um, if you want to participate in the network and you want to be a staker and you want to uh, capture fees from these exchanges, then you need to get uh, SNX and you need to stake that SNX and uh, essentially issue debt, um, which goes into a, a global pool of debt. Um, and then, you know, you, you take that debt and you sell it off uh, into the market and then anyone can convert that debt 
in, you know, the debt is in the form of synthetic U.S. dollars, right? Um, and that those synthetic U.S. dollars can be converted into synthetic Bitcoin or synthetic ETH or any other synthetic asset. But in doing that, you become the counterparty to all of these exchanges that are happening in this giant, you know, undifferentiated debt pool out out in the ether. So there's a bit more risk in that process, but you know the the uh, the payoff, I guess, is that you capture the fees, um, you capture inflation from the network, uh, and you know you're sort of compensated for that work that you're doing. Okay, so the process, as I understand it, is you, you take your synth, your SNX token, you stake it on the protocol, um, and I believe the collateral value is is six hundred percent. Last I checked. Uh, to mint USD or synthetic USD, and then you would then trade or I guess burn the synthetic USD to obtain the synthetic Bitcoin or to mint the synthetic Bitcoin. Is that the process roughly? Yeah, yeah. So you know, there, obviously there is a bit of overlap between people who are who are trading or exchanging synths um, and stakers, um, but like in its purest form, as a staker. You really just want to stake SNX, sell off your SUSD into the market so that you're injecting liquidity out into the market, and then let traders trade those assets, right? Um, you you probably don't, uh, other than for the purposes of, of hedging, um, hedging your exposure to the debt pool, um, you probably don't want to be exchanging synthetic assets yourself. Um, you just want to be injecting liquidity in. Because if what you want to do is, is trade synthetic assets, if that's your primary use case, then you're far better off just taking you know, some USDC or ETH and buying the synths and not participating in the debt pool. Okay. And you mentioned using a, a, an oracle earlier. Um, how, I guess how exactly are the prices of the synthetic assets pegged or, or how do they maintain their value over time? Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So there's a, a number of layers of incentives uh, that are there to ensure that the price of those synths is is actually you know reflecting the price of the oracle. Um, so we use Chainlink oracles to publish the prices. So that's fairly straightforward, right? The the price of the asset uh, within the system just reflects that price. Um, the critical thing is obviously the price of those assets externally to the system, right? So you need exit liquidity. You need, you know, to be able to convert, uh, you know, if we, let's do some stylized trade, right? So I turn up, I've got USDC, I buy SUSD, um, and then I convert that SUSD into synthetic Bitcoin. And now the price of synthetic Bitcoin doubles, right? So I convert back out from synthetic Bitcoin into synthetic US dollars. If there's no liquidity for me to get back out into USDC, then we've got a problem, right? So the the kind of you know key thing here is you need to be able to then trade that SUSD back into USDC to realize and close out the the profit loop, um, and so that's where things like Uniswap v3 come in, Curve come in, um, you know, and, and other AMMs um, where you know there's quite deep liquidity uh, between SUSD and and uh, um, you know Dai. Uh, USDC, um, and then you also have other pools where the synthetic ETH versus ETH, um, which again you know has pretty deep liquidity, um, you know to the tune of you know, tens of thousands of ETH. Um, so even if you're trying to cash out, you know twenty thirty million dollars worth of synthetic ETH into Ether, uh, you can do that fairly easily through Curve um, with pretty minimal slippage. Okay, yeah, that that helps. That makes sense. Um, but let's stay on oracles for a little bit because. Uh, Uh, So synthetics has 
had issues with oracles in the past. I don't think that was related to the Chainlink. Um, how has your experience been with Chainlink now that y'all are using that for your Oracle? And how does that compare to what you used previously? Yeah, so I mean, the 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 difference in my like stress levels, I suppose, and and all of the <laughs> other you know core contributors and the engineering team uh, running on Chainlink versus our own proprietary oracles is. Uh, immeasurable i would say um to put it mildly um the, the i think we ran our own proprietary oracles for all of the assets for at least 18 months it might have even been a little bit longer and then we had a hybrid period where we had you know somewhere on chainlink somewhere our own proprietary oracle um it was a harrowing experience to put it mildly um you know we had uh one major oracle uh failure which was the skrw incident um which led to someone uh, printing, if I remember correctly, around about 11 billion ETH, um, which for those of you who are paying attention, if you're if you're a Bitcoin maxi, you probably know that that's more than the total supply of ETH, although maybe you don't because maybe no one knows what it is. Um, but uh, but it's it's significantly more than you know the 130 million ETH or whatever that's in circulation, obviously. Um, so that created a, a huge issue where uh, the person who was holding that uh, synthetic ether obviously was not going to be able to cash out. Um, and so that trade needed to be unwound and it created, you know, a number of issues uh, within the protocol. Um, so obviously, you know, from that point on, we were, we were fairly actively looking uh, for a more robust Oracle system. Um, I will say that, you know, Chainlink wasn't perfect. There were a couple of minor um, incidents uh, that occurred in the transition and, um, you know, there were, obviously extremely minor comparative to 11 billion ETH, um, you know, somewhere on the order of like a few tens of thousands of dollars uh, for, you know, a couple of uh, for issues where prices were uh, not as accurate as we would have liked. Um, but, you know, that was, I think, in the first couple of months or, or something like that. And, you know, for the last year or more, uh, Chainlink has obviously been extremely robust and, and you know, thankfully there's been no, uh, no further issues. So we've been... We're pretty comfortable these days that uh, the network's secure uh, running Chainlink oracles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Chainlink is a, a great oracle protocol, but I feel like there's a lot of protocols now that are using Chainlink for their oracle of choice. Do you think that if too many protocols use Chainlink, does that run the risk of Chainlink potentially being a centralized point of failure for the ecosystem as a whole? Yeah, you know, Obviously, yes, right? Like just I think from a, a sort of market structural perspective, like almost definitionally, yes. Um, you know, if every single person uses uh, Chainlink, if every single protocol uses Chainlink, if every uh, contract is using Chainlink for, for oracles, um, then you are in a situation where, you know, you probably don't have as efficient a market as you would like. Um, so as much as we're very happy using Chainlink Oracles, I'm also, you know, supportive of Oracle research. Um, you know, there's things like API three and band protocol, and, you know, I'm sure there's a number of others that are running on different chains. Um, you know, I think, uh, jump trading has, uh, pith, um, their own Oracle. So I think it's good to have competition and I don't think we want like a monoculture of like everyone is forced to use Chainlink. That's, that's the only option that's out there that's acceptable to use. Um, but I do think. Uh, that, you know, for more experimental, newer oracles, uh, we 
want to ensure that you know we don't have something like Ave, for example, running on them with you know twenty billion dollars secured or something like that. Um, you know, we want to make sure that the experiments are experiments and and not kind of systemic issues. So I think we're probably in an environment now where it's going to be hard for another Oracle provider to sort of catch up to Chainlink is is kind of my sense. Um, and the good thing about Chainlink is, you know, they continue to iterate. They're not sort of resting on, on their laurels by, by any stretch. They're, you know, improving the architecture and the infrastructure. And, you know, they've got a long roadmap of, uh, you know, decentralization and, and many other aspects that they're working on. So, you know, I'm pretty confident they'll stay the market leader. Um, but I think just from a market's perspective, it's good to have competition. So, you know, I, I obviously welcome uh, other articles to, to come and kind of challenge them and, and keep them honest. Yeah, that that's interesting. That makes sense, too. I, I can. Yeah. I mean, there, there is definitely a market for new oracles to come in. And I think that that is kind of essential. It could be potentially a centralized uh, point of failure for the ecosystem. Uh, but let's let's move on to governance. Um, by the way, I listened to the the bankless uh, DAO governance that you were on yesterday, and that was that was really insightful. But you you took a step back from synthetics for a little bit. Um, you let the Spartan Council kind of take over, and then uh, an old dictator reappeared. Uh, why did you come back? And uh, can you also just talk on token governance in in general and why? Vitalik thinks that uh, token voting sucks. Yeah, uh, so maybe to address the first the first thing first, um, Synthetics has always had, uh, I think, you know, a, a very sort of iterative, um, experimental uh, view of the world, right? Like our epistemology is is kind of centered on the fact that no one knows what the fuck we're doing, um, and you know, if you uh, if you make assumptions and place really large bets on those assumptions you're probably going to get fucked up um and so we try to you know make assumptions and place small bets on them um and you know this this process of kind of me stepping back handing over more control uh to the spot council was just one of those iterative experiments and what we found is that some things worked really well it was actually really good for me to get out of the way of the Spartan Council and gave them room to kind of, you know, take on a lot more uh, control of the protocol, which is exactly the outcome that we wanted. Um, where it was less optimal was within the core contributors who, you know, historically had kind of uh, had me, uh, even core contributor myself, um, you know, coming out of the foundation days, I was sort of the leader of the core contributors and, and the person who was sort of setting, uh, you know, uh, strategy and implementing tactics and all of those things that you need from a leader of a group of people that are trying to do really hard things. Um, and that was sorely lacking. Uh, and so, you know, the purpose of me coming back was to basically get that process back under control. Um, you know, we've added... I think something like 15 or 20 core contributors in the last year. Um, so it's a much larger group of people than it used to be. You know, back in the day, there were eight people um, who, were, who were working on the protocol back in like 2018. Um, so, you know, just getting the scale right, getting the right structure um, in place uh, was something that needed to happen. And, and, you know, what that experiment kind of showed the two sides of, of that uh, process, you know, one that worked really well, one that worked really poorly. Um, and so, you know, my goal is to come back and, and kind of put the right structure in place. And then we'll probably test it again where, you know, I'll just 
be on the Spartan Council for a while, assuming people vote me in, and I won't have as much oversight of the core contributors, and we'll see if the structure that we've all been working to put together is is kind of sufficient. Uh, and if it isn't, then, you know, again, we'll iterate and we'll keep experimenting. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then the other question was, what were your thoughts on uh, Vitalik's piece on governance with token voting? And I feel like y'all have taken a step back from that a little bit. But do you know of anyone who is, who outside, I guess, of synthetics is doing this governance thing well, do you think? Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of people that are doing certain aspects really well, right? Um, I don't think anyone, including synthetics, is doing all of the aspects well. Um, it's still too early, um, you know. Even to kind of make a determination that that someone's doing something well is is hard, right? Because a lot of these things might have only been running for three months, right? And you haven't yet had the right conditions to kind of uh, you know uh, disprove the model um, and, and break break some of these models um it might take something like a you know uh black thursday style event um you know to to really uncover some issue um and so you know i think i think that there's a, a ton of different experiments and there are a lot of uh you know public goods and open source tools that are being produced by a bunch of different projects and we're getting closer um i do think you know when i when i look back on like the the vision of aragon um, there was going to be this uh, very modular stack of tools to kind of support DAOs and, uh, and you know, the fact that it itself wasn't a DAO and blew up pretty spectacularly is, is kind of instructive, I guess, right? Um, but I think that the ecosystem is still missing something like that. Uh, I do think, you know, I know, I know there's stuff out there and, you know, this is not to say uh, that I don't think that those those things that are out there already are, are not, you know, cool experiments themselves. Um, but I don't feel like we have a sort of comprehensive DAO uh, set of tooling that's that's kind of in in one package. Um, and that might be a good thing for now because again, there's a lot of experiments. But um, you know, I think I think over time uh, we'll probably see a few projects emerge uh, that you know are very robust and, and modular, um, but you know, are built for the reality of DAOs today, not the kind of, you know, what we all thought DAOs were going to be in 2016, 2017 when Aragon was starting. Um, and, and, you know, Aragon ended up being a little bit too rigid and, and you know, uh, not uh, not as, uh, as good as we might have hoped. Um, so, yeah, so I think, you know, all of that is to say, like, there's, there's a lot of good stuff happening, there's bad stuff happening. But in my view, you know, rough consensus is still a very powerful uh, process. And, you know, it's the process that keeps Ethereum running and it does it really well. Um, it might not do it as quickly as everyone would like. And, you know, 1559, I think, is a good example of that. It took fucking three years of thrashing around to get it out there, but it does get things done in the end. And I think it, it is a very strong filter on uh, not doing the wrong things, right? Like the right things might take longer than you expect or you want, um, but typically it filters out the wrong things from happening. Um, and that's where I think rough consensus is so powerful. And the issue that you see with direct voting and, and token voting is that the wrong thing can happen, right? And it can happen really quickly and it can happen while no one's paying attention. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's quite dangerous. I mean, even the uni thing today, 
um, you know, like a weird UI front end issue and some other stuff and people not paying attention and, you know, $25 million is almost lit on fire. Like that's, that's, that's the danger I think of, of token voting. And that's not even direct token voting because uni has delegation. So, um, you know, any form of token voting I think is, is pretty dangerous. Right. Yeah. I was actually going to lead into that, uh, next, uh, it just kind of gets your thoughts on Uniswap. I feel like Uniswap's governance has kind of kind of come under fire, uh, quite a bit recently with the education fund and then uh, with you know, the $25 million uh, issue that kind of came to light today and yesterday. What, what are your thoughts on that? Are, is there a solution to dig themselves out of this governance hole? Yeah, I mean, yes, right? The problem that you have with Uniswap, and it's a problem for Uniswap, I think it's extremely beneficial to the rest of the community is it's a fucking giant honeypot, right? So anyone that is out there that believe, you know, some small fraction of this, uh, this thing is capturable is going to come out of the woodwork. And we're going to see all kinds of uh, governance attacks that we haven't yet seen because the stakes might not have been quite high enough to get people to, to you know, make the effort. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those things where like, we look at the market and we say, you know, the market's pretty efficient. Um, there aren't that many governance attacks. Therefore, you know, governance attacks are maybe not that likely, right? Um, and I think that's actually the wrong conclusion. I think the market is super inefficient right now, and people are going to get much more sophisticated around governance attacks. And something like Uni is a very, very good honeypot for you know smoking those sorts of things out. Um, it's not great for Uni, uh, but I think Uni is probably resistant for some of the reasons that Vitalik kind of called out around, like there's a small clique of people that can coordinate who have most of the voting power. Um, so I think that, you know, Uniswap is fairly resistant to these things, provided uh, people are vocal enough. Um, but we're going to see some very interesting governance attacks from, from Uni. In fact, it wouldn't even surprise me if we see something uh, you know, along the lines of the, the you know, bribery style attacks that Vitalik was calling out, right? Um, I think that those attacks will be rejected as well for the, the reasons that I kind of stated, but um, I think you'll see them, and I think it's going to raise the awareness of how critical it is to get governance right, uh, because if we're right, everything's going to be the size of uni. Uh, but yeah, so so basically, you know, if we're right, right, there's going to be a bunch of billion-dollar honeypots floating around, right? Um, and so I think, you know, smoking out some of these attack vectors and proving to the market that they exist um, is going to be really valuable, and Uniswap is going to be uh, probably the place where a lot of people go. Yeah, I feel like for the past, you know, from the ICO boom, and even from now and, and into the future, we've just kind of been building these money Legos and trying to figure out what worked. So to kind of touch back on what you're saying. So do you, do you feel like we could see governance forks in the future where, you know, we, it, we've got an awesome protocol and it makes a lot of money and the users are happy, but the governance sucks. You could just copy the code and change the governance structure. Do you see that as a possibility in the future? Definitely. Um, and, and I think, you know, uh, We've obviously we've seen vampire attacks and we've seen some other you know weird style attacks like that. Um, the the bigger the kind of value that's at risk, I think the more creative people will get. Right? Um, that's you know it's kind of the the market for uh, sort of adversarial governance attacks. Right? And, you know, as we have more value at risk, then we're gonna we're gonna see stuff like that. Um, it. <sighs> 
it would probably require a pretty high bar of illegitimacy, I think, for that to work. Um, so, you know, when you look at like the sushi vampire attack on Uniswap, um, that worked because, you know, you could kind of create these incentives, right, through a token that Uniswap didn't have. And, you know, it was it was an attack vector that I think was fairly open. Um, in order for a similar thing to happen to Uni now, people within the community, I think, would have to get to uh, a pretty high level of uh legitimacy of the governance process right like it would have to be really breaking down before i think people were willing to fork away and kind of rethink the governance process completely but one of the challenges that i think uniswap has is that uh you know the fact that there's like a small clique of people that control uh, a lot of the governance power is it makes it harder for experiments to be run um and you know uniswap is just such a beast right it's you know it's 30 billion dollar protocol or whatever so um you know, running iterative experiments with small bets on governance in Uniswap is tough, right? So to a certain extent, I think the governance that they have now may kind of ossify uh, sooner than you might like. Um, and, you know, they may need to wait until there's some kind of external consensus on a better governance structure to be sort of imposed on on the protocol uh, that has a level of buy-in from the, the wider DeFi community before they can really switch to something else. Uh, but for the, for the moment, I think they're kind of stuck with what they've got. Yeah, that, yeah. And, you know, I know this is, we, we want to talk about synthetics a lot too, but we'll stay on Uni just a, a little bit longer um, because not only are they coming under you know, internal governance attacks, but they're also starting to succumb to pressure from regulators on not supporting synthetic assets with the exception of synthetic USD, which, which I think is interesting. Um, but what are your thoughts on Uniswap's, I guess, front end, not supporting those synthetic assets and which is why do regulators not like synthetic assets? Um, so I think the, I'll, I'll answer the final part of the question first, maybe. Um, I think regulators, don't like synthetic assets um, in general because they're uh, concerned about their ability to uh, track the price of the asset, right? Um, so, like, the more complex an asset you have, the more complex an instrument you have. Uh, from a regulatory perspective, particularly in TradFi, the more oversight that thing needs, right, typically, right? Like, it kind of scales sort of, you know, uh, linearly with, with complexity regulators are like, this looks really complex. Like we want some oversight over it. Um, whereas, you know, very vanilla things, they're, they're kind of inclined to have less you know, regulatory scrutiny, um, often. And, you know, sometimes this only happens after the fact and they realize there's a, you know, very, uh, complex thing that they weren't aware of. Um, but I think for synthetic assets, it's kind of a similar thing. They, they look at these things that are, uh, you know, fairly complex instruments, and, and they say, well, this is something we should be regulating, right? Um, I think there's specific classes of synthetic assets, you know, particularly things that uh, track, um, you know, uh, an already regulated asset class like equities um, that just obviously trigger regulatory scrutiny, right? Like it doesn't, it's, you know, regardless of the complexity of the asset. Um, so I think that there's a number of reasons. And then I think you also have things like stable coins, um, you know, stable coins that are backed by, you know, 
basket of exotic assets are also probably a little bit concerning as well, um, because you know there's there's obviously uh, investor risk there if you're holding the stablecoin and you don't have control of uh, that basket of assets, and you know someone goes and does something weird with it and it blows up. Um, that's just a classic uh, type of thing that regulators are concerned about. So I think there's a whole range of things that uh, that regulators find concerning. Probably where the misalignment is, though, is that uh, these these different types of assets uh, are much more transparent, right? They might be fairly complex and and you know have a level of complexity, but they're they're much more transparent uh, than their tradfi equivalents, right? Like you know, with synthetics, you can go on chain and you can inspect the collateral and you can make sure that it's all there. No one, you know, can kind of uh, remove that collateral. There's a bunch of people individually participating, so you don't have, you know, kind of systemic risk from a couple of large, uh, you know, players in the ecosystem controlling, you know, 90% of the value or anything like that. Um, so I think that there is an educational component here that we need to kind of uh, come to. But I think there will also be a level of kind of negotiation when it comes to things like. USDC, for example, right? Like where, um, you know, the center foundation is going to have to talk to regulators and, and you know, come to some kind of agreement about how they want to handle these things, right? Um, so it's going to take it's going to take a while and there's going to be a process. Um, but ultimately, my view is that, you know, DeFi has a lot of alignment with the outcomes that regulators want, right? They want, you know, fair and transparent and efficient markets. Um, you know, that's, I think there's a lot of people who maybe are skeptical of that, but like I genuinely think most regulators are, are kind of you know there for a reason. Um, you know, being a regulator is not necessarily the most uh, sexy thing that you could do um, in the world, right? Um, and so, you know, my sense is that someone who is doing that job is doing it for a reason. They they really truly believe that markets should be efficient, um, and I think that DeFi is an amazing tool for getting to very efficient markets. And so, um, you know, we have a lot of alignment, the DeFi uh, ecosystem with regulators. It's just that there's a lot of uncertainty from the regulatory side around how to reason about these things. And that's our, that's our kind of bridge to cross. And, and, you know, it's our job to make sure that we educate people. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, yeah, what were your thoughts on Uniswap's front end not allowing or not supporting these synthetic assets? I think, it, you know, Uniswap front-end is a hosted front-end that, you know, is run by a centralized entity, right? Like, they, they're going to have to be more responsive to these kinds of regulatory considerations than, uh, you know, a, a DAO would be, or, you know, someone who's just publishing software and, and, you know, pushing it to IPFS and kind of leaving it out of the world, um, or, or, you know, publishing a smart contract or something like that. Um, so I personally don't have a huge issue. I, I think, you know, it wasn't that surprising to me either that uh, Uniswap would take an action like that because you know they've always taken pretty uh, preemptive action when it comes to you know uh, their like allow lists around you know certain regions that can access Uniswap and all kinds of things. So it was very much in, in the same vein. Um, uh, yeah, and when we spoke with uh, Farmwell from the Thales Protocol, I think he shared similar. Uh, sentiments to you, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with him, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know him. <laughs> um, yeah, let, let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, binary options in the Thales protocol. How did that kind of come together 
and why did y'all decide to do a, basically a, a separate protocol for this instead of just having it under the synthetics uh, umbrella ecosystem? Yeah, so when we launched Binary Options, uh, it was an MVP, um, and it had some issues. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think I, I kind of mentioned this. Uh, there was a point where there were only eight core contributors working on the project. Um, so we were pretty bandwidth constrained, and it just didn't make sense, in spite of the fact that it had, like, good early traction to invest a lot of resources in, in fixing those issues. Um, and so a number of people in the community who uh, were pretty... Uh, excited, I guess, by um, by you know what the the MVP of binary options looked like. Um, discussed, you know, kind of uh, how we could take it to the next level, what we could do, um, and we basically came to the conclusion. I think that it would be better uh, run as a separate project. Um, there was also some structural things where you know uh, SUSD was the collateral asset for binary options, but binary options were not tied to the synthetic step pool, so it kind of it was an easier thing to fork out and, and you know, spin off into its own project than uh, some of the other products we've had, like Inverse Synths or, or whatever. Um, and so I think it just made sense. And then, uh, you know, uh, Daniel and, um, and Farmwell sort of stepped up and said, you know, we really like this thing and, and take it on. Um, and so, you know, the, the Synthetics DAO said, great, you know, run with it and, and kind of... Uh, you know, synthetics governance worked with the the Thales team to kind of spin them out, and I think this is something just at a conceptual level uh, that is really powerful about synthetics is it has the ability through you know kind of having this very legitimate governance structure that it does now to kind of hive off that legitimacy, right? That you can you know take that legitimacy and, and kind of hive it off and spin out a project that starts. Um, DAO first and starts from this kind of very legitimate governance structure is, is really cool. And we've seen that happen a few times now with Thales and Quenta, um, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. And um, we've got about 10 minutes left, so I just want to make sure we get to the questions that the community uh, wants answered as well. Uh, one of them is, uh, so you're, you're deployed on Optimism now. Why did Synthetics choose Optimism over Arbitrum or even uh, the Polygon sidechain? We chose optimistic rollups over the other uh, scaling solutions out there. I guess um, uh, primarily because uh, the you know zk uh, um, solutions at the time and even now um, were were not going to be able to support uh, like on chain state like synthetics. That kind of just precluded them from being considered. Um, and I think the synthetics community uh, was reasonably skeptical and probably rightly skeptical about the uh, sort of security trade-offs with Polygon. Um, you know, it was more of a sidechain uh, than a, a layer two scaling solution. Um, I'm sure I'll get flamed by some Polygon maxis uh, <laughs> for that, but I think that's just our, <laughs> our take. Um, and so therefore, we were kind of left with this decision of, you know, okay, optimistic rollups, um, you know, Arbitrum's there, uh, um, and then Optimism was there. We'd seen the Unipig demo um, it was super exciting. We approached the Optimism team and said, hey, you know, would you guys be open to us doing a similar demo for exchanges on, on Synthetics Exchange? They were really excited about it. Um, you know, obviously, Synthetics is a very complex 
small contract suite. And so, um, you know, we did that first demo uh, and we felt like we had really good alignment uh, with, you know, the Optimism uh, team. And so that from that point on, it was just kind of, you know, we were investing uh, in that project uh, pretty heavily with resources and, and, you know, with that alignment kind of continued through to the present day where, you know, we're there now. Um, and, you know, this is still uh, something, I guess, that's, you know, up for uh, synthetics governance to, to sort of decide and, and Spartan Council to decide, uh, which is, you know, do we at some point deploy on other chains? Um, what would that look like? Uh, you know, there's, there's still, I think, quite a bit of pressure to deploy to places like Polygon or Avalanche, Avalanche um, uh, probably a little less so for like BSC. Um, but, you know, the EVM compatible places, I think it is tempting uh, to deploy. Um, but synthetics is a bit weird. I think if we were going to deploy to, you know, somewhere like BSC, for example, uh, you would probably just fork the protocol and deploy it there uh, and run it as a, a, you know, totally separate instance. Um, I don't know what that would do for liquidity. We haven't tested that out yet. Uh, we got kind of close to doing that with EOS and, and pulled the pin because when we actually, you know, arrived there, uh, it turned out to be a ghost town. <laughs> so we decided to... And not uh, not proceed with that, um, which was the right call, obviously. Um, but yeah, I think I think you know there's certainly a chance, um, and maybe even a reasonable chance that uh, synthetics is is forked onto um, you know some of these other EVM compatible chains at some point. Yeah, I, that's interesting. You mentioned uh, Binance Smart Chain because we had Leo Chang on last week, and he said you know Cream is on you know ETH. Binance, Phantom, Polygon, Arbitrum. I think they're deploying on Moonbeam soon. So, and you said that Synthetics is a unique protocol. Um, do you see, or I guess in that sense, when it comes to layer twos and sidechains or just other L1s completely, do you see Synthetics going that far onto that many chains? Or are you just going to, do you think you'll just pick and choose the ones that fit right for the protocol? So when I when I say synthetics is unique, I, what I'm referring to specifically is the fungibility of assets. All right. So let's take Maker as an example. Right. So if you had two instances of Maker, one of them is running on Polygon, right, or BSC, right, and the other one's running on Ethereum L1. And in each of those, you can lock ETH, right, and you can uh, draw down Dai. Um, that Dai, in a very real sense is not fungible, right? So if you move the die that was minted on BSC, for example, uh, onto Ethereum L1, it's a different asset, right? It has different security properties. Um, and that's just something that's kind of uh, in inherent to an, a an asset issuance platform, right? Versus something like an AMM or uh, you know a lending protocol where you are leveraging the fungibility of assets, right? Um, rather than kind of creating your own assets. And so let's say you're compound, right? Um, running on BSC, it might be annoying to kind of maintain that, right? Like there might be some level of overhead, um, but you can inherit the fungibility of all the assets that have been bridged to BSC without creating any weird uh, sort of fungibility issues. You can't do that if you're Maker with DAI or if you're Synthetics with SUSD and, and other synths. Um, it's just a very different uh, kind of protocol where when you're issuing your own assets. Okay, yeah, that makes I haven't really thought about it like that. Um, okay, so we've got about five more minutes. 
Um, so two questions for you here. Um, one, what, you know, at the index co-op, we create indices to make investing in crypto easy. Uh, what is an index that you would like to see the co-op put together? And then my next question after that is, uh, what other projects outside of the synthetics ecosystem are catching your eye these days? Yeah, so, um, I mean, we did actually have a project that we're working on uh, with Index, which uh, right. I sort of, yeah, it didn't, didn't uh, make it fully to fruition um, for whatever reason. Um, and so uh, and so that, that was kind of this debt uh, hedging tool um, that we were talking about building. Maybe it'll get revived at some point, but uh, I think there were some issues around, um, you know, the, the cost of transactions or something like that. Um, so that was definitely something I was excited about. Um, but, you know, I'm a holder of uh, DPI. Um, I think it's really cool. I think, uh, you know, uh, indexes are an incredibly valuable instrument um, and when they're you know, constructed in the right way, um, you know, they can give people exposure to, um, you know, a whole range of, uh, of different things that would be hard to construct or, or you know, expensive and difficult, time consuming to construct yourself. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm very bullish on indices and, and uh, sorry. Yeah. I, and so, I mean, uh, I, well, OK, that's great news. Uh, so everyone, you heard it here first. Kane holds DPI. And we're probably going to use that sound clip over and over again uh, in some marketing materials. <laughs> I've got a big. I've actually. I I haven't checked to see how big I am on the on the index uh, holder list, um, but I got a big chunk of DPI, so I've uh, been holding it for a while. Um, uh-huh. that's, so yeah, that's good to hear. Now, well, now we need to get you into the MVI, the Metaverse Index. Um, are you involved? Oh, interesting. In, are you involved in the Metaverse at all? I haven't had much time uh to to kind of go deep into the metaverse um i'm i'm you know at like pfp uh level right now um i just bought a uh just aped into board apr club so i'm i'm still in like 2d land i'm not press yet okay okay um yeah and then uh what other projects outside of the synthetics ecosystem is catching your eye um, I'm still very, uh, very bullish on uh, like NFTs, gaming, art, culture, music, etc. And, and I, I think my, I, I won't necessarily, I won't dox the person who kind of put this idea in head, but I had a, a thread about this recently and, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot. You know, when you're building something that is like to, uh, create, some concern from regulators, right? Um, and and they're they're going to scrutinize it and, and maybe you know have some concerns about it or, or you know need to be educated. Um, one of the most powerful things that you can do is sort of demonstrate that you have a lot of users that are really interested and excited about using that thing. Um, and you know when you look at things like Uber, um, Airbnb, uh, you know having tens of millions of users who love uh, to use an app is a very powerful kind of counterbalance to, to you know, uh, regulatory scrutiny because regulators look at that and they say, well, hang on a second, there must be some utility, right? If there's tens of millions of people that are, you know, super excited about using this product every day, uh, you know, we are in a situation where the existing kind of regulatory framework is just not adapted to whatever this thing is doing, 
right? Um, and, you know, particularly when you have like incumbent interests, um, as we obviously do from the TradFi industry, um, that are going to lobby very hard to kind of, uh, you know, constrain competition um, in the same way that, you know, the taxi industry like that did, uh, and the hotel industry did, you know, those two examples that I used. Getting tens of millions of users playing games and interested in NFTs for, you know, art and music and, uh, you know, movies and um, photography and, you know, all kinds of things like that is a hugely valuable thing, right? And the reality is that most people don't care that much about finance, right? People might care about speculation, but they don't care about finance that much, right? Like weird esoteric structured products that are just not that exciting to many people. Um, but movies are exciting, right? And sport is exciting and, um, you know, things like that. So I think that expanding the users of uh, the Ethereum network via these other avenues, these much more, um, you know, uh, kind of exciting and, and interesting and attention capturing avenues is a very powerful way to demonstrate to incumbent regulators and all kinds of people that might be looking at crypto with skeptical eye that there's real value and utility here. Um, and that, you know, what we're building is something that's, that's worth preserving and that they shouldn't be trying to, uh, you know, squash it. They should allow it to, to kind of, uh, you know, play out um, and, and let the market kind of determine the direction it goes. Yeah. I, when you say that, that reminds me of Audius and how they just formed that partnership with TikTok. Um, and one of the methodologists for the Metaverse Index, Dark Forest, he and I were talking and he said that, you know, this shows that it's not just all PFPs here. You know, there's there's real, <laughs> there's real stuff here. Um, and yeah, I think I partnerships like that help and just add validity to that space. Um, OK, so we're up on time now. So, Kane, thanks for being here. And uh, why don't you tell everyone where can people go to find out more about you and synthetics uh probably best bet for synthetics is the synthetics discord um that's probably the best place um you can find the link on the synthetics twitter uh, which is synthetics underscore io um if you want to for whatever reason um uh, whatever perverse reason you have follow me um probably twitter is the best place uh, which is at k-a-i-y-n-n-e it's my handle all right, perfect. Well, Kane, thanks again for being here with us. Uh, everyone in the audience, thanks for listening. This is being recorded, and so we'll get this recording out sometime next week, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Awesome. Appreciate it.